Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 is the passage that we're looking at for a few weeks. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we come to your word looking to be nurtured and fed and strengthened this morning. We ask that you would do the work of, of uh, opening our eyes and our hearts, helping us to understand. Your scripture is a, a sword that pierces to the deepest places of our lives. Your, your word, it says, is a hammer that can crush the anvil, and so it can certainly break through the debris of our hearts and build us up. And we ask that you would do this for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're looking this morning at at Hebrews 10.23. Just a a tiny bit of reminder, we we began in verse 19 last week seeing the the beginning of this applicational portion of the book of Hebrews. And with the reality that we've got the confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he inaugurated, and we have a high priest in heaven, Jesus the righteous, then the writer of Hebrews gives us three points of application. The first one we saw last week is let us draw near to God. And he describes the, the, uh, the state in which we are to draw near. This morning we're going to look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In other words, let us not change. Let us not change. Change is is an interesting kind of thing. There obviously is change that is good. Babies are born and they grow up and they start walking and they start talking and they go to school and they graduate and they get married and have babies and then support us. I'm still waiting for that last one, but everything else has worked. Farmers plant seeds, at least when God lets you get into your fields. And then those seeds germinate and they begin to grow and eventually they produce a a crop. We listened to Jean play piano this morning. She didn't sit down this morning for the first time. She has spent years playing piano. She practiced. She started out rough with chopsticks like everyone does. And over time, she picked up the muscle memory so that she can read the music and play. There's change that is, that is very good. There is obviously change that is not always good. In fact, there's change that is harmful. When a healthy cell in somebody's body becomes cancerous, that's a harmful change. When barometric pressure drops and brings in severe storms or t- tornadoes, 
That's a harmful change. When husbands and wives meet somebody else and commit adultery and wreck lives, that is a harmful change. Some change is good. Some change is not good. Here's where it gets a little tricky. Some good change doesn't feel good. Sometimes change that is good doesn't feel good. It was good when our daughter Sarah got married to Elliot. We gained a son. We've gained a a family with Elliot's family. We've gained four fantastic grandkids. It was good when our daughter Grace went off and joined the Air Force early this year. She's now in Monterey. She's in her sixth week of learning Russian, and, and she's just moving ahead with her life as an adult and thriving. But I have to say, those changes have not always felt good. It's still a little hard to talk to Grace on FaceTime. Hard to see that pretty face. Think she's not in our house anymore. It's a good change, but it doesn't feel good. And, and oddly enough, or not oddly enough, we have to say that unfortunately not all bad change feels bad. Not all bad change feels bad. Over a number of years, my blood pressure got worse and worse. Almost two years ago now, uh, at, at a, on a visit to the dentist, they, they checked my blood pressure, and it was 190 over 140. If you Google that, the first thing that will come up is call 911. It was high enough that it could have killed me at any time. It was by the mercy of God that it was discovered. It was a time bomb, but I never felt bad. See, some bad changes don't feel bad. There's good change, there's bad change. Often good change can feel bad or uncomfortable or difficult. And sometimes bad change feels okay. Now, what does this have to do with our passage? It has everything to do with our passage. Because we are told here not to change. We're told to hold on tight without wavering. We are to hold tight, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We are to resist change. This word hold tight means to grab on and refuse to let go. It's the word used to describe the arrest of John the Baptist by Herod and the arrest of Jesus in the garden. Those men were taken captive. They were held. They were chained. They were imprisoned. So the scripture says, You know that faith that you have? You know that confidence that you have in the gospel and in Jesus Christ? Imprison it in your heart and mind. Don't let it go. Don't give in to change. And do this without wavering. Do this without wavering. The word translated wavering means to lean or to bend. I I really like this word as as I looked into it. It was used of ancient boats and the way that they were steered. You'd have a rudder mounted down at the, at the bottom of the back of the boat. You'd have a post coming up off the rudder. And then you'd have a tiller. And those early tillers would often curve up over the back of the boat. And in order to steer the boat, you leaned the tiller. So what this means is hold fast the confession of your hope without leaning either way. Be strict about it. Be narrow about it. Be straight about it. Believe Jesus when he says there is a narrow way. And that narrow way is straight. But beyond any question, 
Every error in the church, big and small, began with the failure to cling tightly to what the scriptures say. Error begins with a view of scripture that says it's malleable, it's compliant, it can be formed into anything that you want. It can be made to say anything that you want it to say. Painful as it is, those who cling tightly are often accused. If we do this, if we do what Jude says, which is to contend earnestly. Contend means fight. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all, once for all handed down to the saints, not developed over centuries. Once for all handed down. If we do that, we will be labeled as narrow, bigoted, unsophisticated, out of touch, behind the times. Oddly enough, though, the denominations that ignore this, the denominations that adapt their theology, that change their theology, that don't hold tight, are the denominations that are rapidly shrinking and becoming irrelevant and insignificant. Why are they becoming irrelevant and insignificant? Because you can't tell the difference between that church and the world. If you can't tell the difference between the church and the world, the church ceases to have any purpose for being there aside from a club, and eventually the people who belong to that club won't be there anymore. The churches that are actually growing and that are actually strong are the churches that have maintained what Scripture teaches over the last 2,000 years. Tragically, most apostasies didn't happen suddenly where you could see them happen. They weren't like head-on collisions. They were like cancers that grow a cell at a time and take over secretly before anybody knows what was going on. 200 years ago, it would have been utterly unthinkable in, in any church around the world for homosexuality be, to be accepted at all. 200 years ago, a German theologian named Friedrich Schleiermacher began to alter the theological view of Scripture. He began to say, maybe it's not as authoritative as, as we think. Maybe it needs to be filtered through the Enlightenment and humanism. Those were discussions that only took place at the university level. Nobody heard this out of a pulpit. It just took place with the, with the, the academy, with the professors and the doctors. 200 years later now, we find that the churches that don't accept homosexuality are in the minority. What happened? Men like Schleiermacher just began this subtle, quiet, incremental change. Schleiermacher was not out to to see homosexuality accepted. Not at all. But as soon as you begin to drift from what Scripture says, as soon as you begin to compromise, as soon as you begin to lean and to waver instead of holding fast. The, the door is open. We're not to do that. We must hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering in the slightest degree to the best of our ability. Now, why should we do this? We're told in the passage, it's because he who promised is faithful. It's because God is faithful. It's because God has made promises and he will not fail. So the Father will not fail. He sees you, he knows you, he cares about you, he rewards those who are faithful, he protects them. Almost every New Testament letter begins with a reminder of the grace and peace that comes to us from God 
our Father. He is sovereign over every last aspect of creation, including the hearts and minds of human beings. And he will not fail to glorify his name in creation. The Son will not fail. He didn't die on the cross to make salvation possible, but to make salvation actual for his people. He actually saved his people on the cross. His death was utterly sufficient. He entered heaven to begin interceding for his people. He never forgets to pray for us. He, if, if we could enter in right now into the heavenly places where Jesus is interceding, you would find him there busy doing what he has said he would do. You would not find him absent. You could never walk in there and, and, and find an, an empty place at the altar in heaven. He will not fail to accomplish the Father's will in saving those the Father has given him. And the Holy Spirit will not fail. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, just as Jesus said he would. He gives life and faith to those for whom Jesus died. He causes us to be born again to a living hope. He takes up an eternal residence within us, making us his temple. He teaches us, purifies us, comforts us, strengthens us, gives us wisdom and assurance. He faithfully carries out every last desire of the Father and the Son. He will not fail. He cannot fail. See, God is faithful. So we can cling to the promise that God has made in his word. We can hold tight to the confession of our hope without wavering because God is faithful. Paul did this in his life. He said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. That's what he did. That's That's Paul's testimony about his life in Christ. Is I held tight and I didn't waver. And as a result, he says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on this day. Notice that what he says here is, in the future there is laid up for me. It's already laid up. It's already set aside. There's no doubt. There's no question. The awarding of it has not yet taken place, but the crown itself is guaranteed. We can hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering because he who promised is faithful. We don't need to alter our beliefs and our faith in order to accomplish God's purposes on the earth. That's what you hear many liberals say. We have to change. We have to alter this. We have to change our view in order to reach out to people. If we change our view to match what the world already thinks, the world will say, thanks, that's great, but see, we don't need you now. It's only by holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering that we remain faithful to the gospel and we're able to to offer the world what it most needs, which is the Savior. That's where the world's hope is. Now, does this mean that holding fast is what saves us? Does this mean that we're saved by persevering in the faith and that our salvation ultimately depends on us? And the answer is no. The reason that it's no is that there's two things that are taking place at the same time. There is preservation and perseverance. Preservation is God's job. Preservation is 
is God's job. For instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are protected by the power of God. We are protected by the power of God. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12.2, if you just look over a page or two, you'll see that Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith. He didn't start it and then put it into our hands to, to finish and to make what we can of it. He initiated our faith and he will bring it to its perfect conclusion. As as I pulled together verses and compared uh, and and scriptures that have to do with the preservation of God's people, so many piled up that it would take at least two hours just to read the scriptures that promise that God preserves his people. So we sin, we fail, but he preserves us. We do fail, we do sin, but he preserves us. He will not let us fall away. I love what the Lord Jesus says in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And notice what he says, I give eternal life to them. Eternal life is life that is more or less eternal. If it can come and go, it's not eternal. And they will never perish. That's the opposite of eternal life, is perishing. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Maybe somebody could overcome the Lord, and so he says, no one will, no one will snatch them out of my hand. But that's not all. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Those of us who are in Christ are held, and we are doubly held. It's not just that we're in Jesus' hand. This is how I picture it. We're in Jesus' hand, And the Father's hand is wrapped around Jesus' hand. See, we're preserved. We're preserved through our weakness, through our fears, through our doubts, through our sins, through our failings. We are preserved. We must also persevere. Jesus says this very, very plainly. Because lawlessness increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end... He will be saved. He calls us to endure. That's what we see in Hebrews 10.23. Hold fast without wavering. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, that Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, let's just acknowledge, these sound like conditions to salvation. These sound like we have to meet these things in order to be saved. That's why it's so important that we understand that that God's preservation 
is first and our perseverance follows as a result of his preservation. He doesn't preserve us because we persevere. We persevere because he preserves us. That's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, persevere, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Preservation. Why do we persevere? Because God is preserving us. God is at work so that we desire and work for his glory. If you desire his glory, if you work for his glory, if you confess your sin, which is, which is a denial of his glory and an insistence on yourself, if you come before him and with, with, with the, the weightiness on your heart and the pain in your life and you, you say to him, I've got all of this, but I, I do long for your glory and I long for you to be great in the earth. That's because he is at work within you to change your will and to give you the ability to be faithful. How can we hold fast without wavering? Let me, let me give you four thoughts here. First of all, we have to admit that wavering is what we do. Wavering is just what we do. When Satan came to Eve in the garden, it's, it's a perfect model of how we respond. God had said, black and white, this is really clear. In the day you eat of that, you will die. <laughs> Satan didn't come to Eve and immediately just say, God's wrong. That would have been a black and white contradiction to what the Lord said. Satan came to Eve instead and said, did God really say? And then he misquotes. Did God really say you can't eat anything? In other words, Satan didn't give Eve the sin. Satan simply got Eve confused. He simply got her wondering and questioning. And instead of Eve saying, no, wait a second, you misquoted him. Which is what we should do. Eve thought, oh, I wonder. And, and she was on the hook. And, and from that point, Satan just reeled her in. She was on the hook as soon as she began to wonder. As soon as that worked. So we have to admit that this is part of us too. It's hard to hold a single position for very long. It can get boring. New ideas can seem exciting. Other people with new ideas can, can seem to be uh, so energetic about what they have. And what we've got is this old thing. And so we want to keep up. But let's be quick to confess how easily we lose interest in the rock foundation that we've been given. Second, we have to pay attention to what we read and what we watch, what we listen to. We have to pay attention to what we take in. Most of us would know the statement, garbage in, garbage out. So this week, a well-known teacher, Beth Moore, was asked her position on a basic point of theology. Her response was that she didn't know her position on that basic point of theology. That for 40 years, she sat under such a broad range of teachers. 
that she's basically, um, and these are his, her words, all I know to call myself is a mongrel. She's proud of the fact that she sat under such a huge range of teaching that she doesn't know her own views on a basic point of theology. She's proud of that. That's not something to be proud of. That's something to be ashamed of. Now, can I say, for, for, for those who are not involved in studying and teaching as a profession... There has to be a lot of grace because there's, there are so many voices out there. But when somebody presents themselves as an expert, there's a higher standard, and she should know. So we have to pay attention to what we read and watch and listen to. If you fill your mind with unworthy things, if you fill your mind with questionable doctrines and false teachers, you can't be surprised when you don't hold fast. And when as a result of that, you're unsteady and unstable. Third, we've got to be in fellowship with one another. We're going to talk about this more next week, but there is a direct relationship between spiritual instability and spiritual isolation. There are people who just happily, quote-unquote, do church sitting at home. I saw this week, and I don't know the denominational group, but I saw this week that there's a denominational group that, that now has an app so that you can participate in their worship services and you can even be digitally baptized. No. No. See, people who do that are not going to be stable. They're not going to have an ongoing living faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. They've, they're just... Uh, talking in in what they call the echo chamber, where it's just them and their own thoughts. There's no accountability. It's easy to embrace whatever spiritual uh, fad comes down the pike. Finally, we've got to be in the Scriptures frequently. We've got to be in the Scriptures frequently and believe them and obey them as, as the will of God. Ideally... This probably would surprise you coming from me. Ideally, the Christian should be in the Word every day. Realistically, that's hard. Realistically, that's hard. And and I suppose that my views on the details here would have changed over time and might even change in the future. But right now, I think what I would say is I think it would be better for you to spend 30 minutes once a week studying and reading and meditating and contemplating what the Word of God says than to spend five minutes a day skimming. We're better off when we read it and ask, what's it saying and how does it impact my life than simply letting it wash over our eyes. Jesus says this. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rock is the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Christ. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. It had been founded on what is unchanging and permanent. He says, on the other hand, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, which is everything other than the teaching of Scripture. 
The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And it struck me just this morning as I was sitting here as we were getting ready to start, it struck me just this morning that there's a huge difference between rock and sand. And one of the huge difference between rock and sand is that rock is this solid, monolithic, single, massive piece of material joined together as a unit where sand is of course granular sand you can have all kinds of things mixed in the most unstable christians i know are the people whose lives are filled with sand they've got beliefs from here and here and here none of it connects up none of it is coherent none of it can join with the others they're just random thoughts and they're always open to more random thoughts The stable Christians that I know are actually the boring ones. They're the ones who are in the word and who just say, God said it, that settles it. You know, the God said it, I believe it, that settles it. doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God said it, that settles it. That's that's the boring thing of, of what I do. There's nothing new. I, I've got nothing new to tell you. At at the newest, it's 2,000 years old. There's nothing new here. Nothing new. A stable life requires a stable foundation. Those who refuse to hold fast to the word of God never stop looking for the next thing. They never stop looking for the thing that will actually make them feel secure. Why Why are they constantly looking? Because they don't feel secure. Because they know that they're not secure. They know that they're not steady. We've known Christians who never stop looking for the next cool thing. In fact, I, I know a woman in Norfolk. She doesn't go to our church in Norfolk. She doesn't go to our church here. One or two of you may know who she was. I'm not going to mention any names. That's not the issue. But she has pursued every year or two the next great thing. And, and at a time years ago when I was her pastor, you know what the next new thing was? The Bible. She, dis- she discovered the Bible. And this person who came in and tried to influence people to this and that and this and that and this and that suddenly was trying to influence people to the Bible. And it's like, this is what I do every week. You didn't invent this. And she acted like it was her idea. And, and not surprisingly, but sadly, it was a year or two and then some other thing kind of took that away. And she's not stable. And by that, I mean she's not stable emotionally. She's not stable personally. She's not stable in her faith. She's not stable in her hope. She she lives in constant discontentment and dissatisfaction because nothing ever satisfies, and it won't because she's not living on the rock. She's not living on the rock. I thank God for his inerrant, infallible word because you know something? I am not a smart man. I am not a smart man. I'm not clever. I, I don't get life. I don't get people. There, there have been times that I thought I, I was kind of autistic because I don't get people. I, I don't get groups of people. I don't get relationships. I look at them and go, I don't understand. What I have, what I, what I think I bring and, and basically all that I bring is a, is a strong and unyielding confidence that the scriptures are the word of God. 
And because of that, I'm stable. Because of that, I have my feet on something that doesn't ring when I pound on it. I have something that holds me up in the storms. Jude offers this praise to God, and it's appropriate for me to offer it this morning. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, he preserves. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, he preserves you so that you can persevere. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your graciousness to us, for your kindness to us. We thank you for your patience to us. We thank you for the stability that you, that you give us. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to preserve us and teach us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because you are faithful. Teach us to be unbending. Teach us to be unyielding. Teach us to refuse to compromise on issues of truth. Teach us to rely on your word and on the gospel as the very foundation of truth and life itself. So that those who are dying without your word may find the Savior. So that your people who struggle, and we all struggle at various times, would be encouraged by those who are standing firmly. And we thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.